All right, if you can go to John 19. We're coming to the end of this chapter. We're not going to get there today. We'll get there on Thursday at our Monday Thursday service. Um, Hope you're able to make it for that, 7 o'clock. There's our little promo before I forget when I'm brain dead at the end of the sermon. So, okay. Beginning in verse uh, 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, indeed we ask that you would bless the reading of your word this morning that you would help us by the power of the Spirit to understand your Word and to understand not just the sense of the words, but the implication of the words. That you, by the Spirit, would be humbling us uh, by the miseries of Jesus, but also that you would be building confidence in us, confidence in your love through the miseries of Jesus that you would do this double work that only you can do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to see Jesus in his humiliation as well as his exaltation, but both for the salvation of your people as the supreme manifestation and basis of grace that we might rejoice from the heart. And we ask this, In Jesus' name, amen. Here we have uh, three rather interesting kind of little clumps of things that in some sense seem a little disconnected as uh, it talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. But I want us to look at this in part uh, with with a mind to what we see in chapter 1 with this phrase, in him was life. Meaning, speaking, of course, at that point of the eternal word, the son of the father who was with God and who was God and who, as we see later on in that passage, is going to take on flesh 
and tabernacle among us. And so we see this notion that Jesus is the one in whom there is life. There is bios, biological life. He's able to, to grant physical life to things, but even more than that, He's able to grant spiritual life to people. And so I want us to keep in the back of our minds this idea of who Jesus is as on that basis of that. But I want us to see and to embrace the incredible irony of John's Gospel, an irony that we've seen repeatedly, but which sort of culminates here in the crucifixion of Jesus. That what we have is not the mere death of a man, but we have life itself embracing death in order that He might restore spiritual life to those who were dead in sin and trespasses. That indeed, there is far more here than that meets the eye. And so let us see what meets the eye and everything else as well as the Spirit illuminates this for us. The first thing I want us to think think about as we look at this first paragraph, this first chunk, is that Jesus was stripped so that we might be clothed in righteousness. This goes a little bit beyond the text in a sense, if we're only looking at it explicitly. But we see here in the text, of course, that when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts. Jesus here, or John, reveals to us through the death of Jesus the depths of humiliation as well as the heights of glory in the crucifixion. And one thing that we need to keep in mind as we consider the crucifixion is that Jesus was stripped. Even with one of the elders, we were discussing this in the in the Boyer foyer uh, before the worship service. Well, you know, all the pictures you see that, this, that uh, you know, about the crucifixion, Jesus has this little loincloth, this little modesty thing, and that's for us. It's not for Him, you see. Because the Romans didn't care about that. They didn't care about the modesty of a criminal. In fact, they wanted to humiliate and strip the criminal of any sense of modesty. And so all of these three men would have been stripped completely naked so they would be shamed and humiliated before the crowd that jeered and cheered before them. This was standing, standard operating procedure for the Romans. They want you to know that you have been completely vanquished and that you as a criminal, and in this case, insurrectionist and seditionist, were nothing. You would be the scorn and shame of all. And it wasn't just crucifixion. As I was preparing for community group this week and um, talking about the sufferings that Paul uh, experienced, and Paul in Second Thess- Thessalonians talks about what happened to him in Philippi, and John Stott notes there that when they flogged Paul, of course they weren't supposed to flog Paul, Paul was a Roman citizen, and so he was supposed to be beyond that, okay? But they didn't check 
They just assumed that he was a Jew and therefore not a citizen, and so they flogged him. And what they did when they flogged you was not just public, a public beating, but they also stripped you naked, humiliate you in front of everybody else. We're uncomfortable with that. Or at least most of us are with these ideas. Some of us have dreams in which we are in front of other people. In our, we're hopefully in our underwear, but sometimes we might be naked, exposing our fears of these things. I remember gym class in middle school, and that was, you know, the joys of going to middle school as a boy was that we had to take showers. It's a horrible time for boys to have to take showers in front of other boys. Okay, there's felt something wrong about it. And our culture is in many ways uh, uncomfortable, unless you're a Kardashian, um, with being naked in front of other people. Okay, That's something we generally try to avoid. There's still generally at least a sense of kind of shame that happens with that. And that's not a wrong sort of thing. There's a, there's a right place for shame. And the public exposure in this way was often seen as or connected to the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament. And so the stripping of Jesus is to, not to be seen as something that is incidental, but I think really needs to be seen as something that was purposeful. Because Jesus is not dying for his sin, he's dying for our sins, and we spiritually are adulterers. And this is another way in which he bears the penalty for what we have done. He was stripped and he was exposed, as well as beaten and crucified for our adultery for our worship of other gods, our looking for life and everything but the true God. And this was not something that Jesus rejected, but we see from Hebrews 12 that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And part of the shame he despised or took lightly was that being stripped naked. Jesus, who now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Jesus endured all of of this shame, not just that, but the mockery that took place. Oh, he saved others, but can he save himself? All of these ways, manifestations of shame that were placed upon Jesus, he endured them for the joy that was before him, and part of that joy was seeing his people who were naked, Clothed in righteousness. Clothed in His perfect righteousness. Just as we see in the prophecy of Zechariah, where it talks about Joshua the high priest and this vision of him in filthy garments and them having to be removed. And then clean garments placed upon him so he could fulfill his calling to the people. Jesus has our filthy garments removed and He places upon us fine, 
clean, white linen, His own righteousness to replace that which we have polluted by our sin. This is really a fulfillment in a far greater way of what we see in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, having been exposed, their eyes opened and seeing that they are naked, hid from God. They made little loincloths, so to speak, of uh, leaves and branches to cover themselves. But what we see is this, that the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, uh, and Adam, Adam, ugh, for Adam and his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. And so even back in the garden, we see this hint of the gospel of God taking away that which really couldn't cover them, but through the shed blood of the animal, now covering Adam and Eve. And so in a far greater fashion, through the shed blood of Jesus, our nakedness, our cause for shame, is covered by God. I thank the person who gave me J.C. Ryle's Uh, expositional thoughts on John because I find so much richness there. And one of the richness uh, that I find, these little, he's got these little gospel bombs that he drops throughout this. And one of them is, he was stripped naked and reckoned and dealt with as a guilty sinner in order that we might be clothed with the garment of his perfect righteousness and reckoned innocent. I love how Ryle ties that all together nicely. It was also customary, as that hints at, for the soldiers involved in the execution to get the clothing. That's why they're dividing things up. They're going to each get their portion of the spoils, and my mind can't help but go to it's a mad, 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 mad world when everyone talks about their shares. You know, they're all trying to get a share of the booty. That's one of the the words that shows up a billion times in that movie is shares. Each of these men is going to get their share of the clothes of each of the criminals that are there, and, of course, Jesus. And so they divide things, and here's the problem. There's four of them, and there's five pieces of clothing. So he would have, generally speaking, his head covering. He would have his robe. He would have his belt, and he would have his sandals, and lastly would be the tunic. And so they've divided everything up, but they have the problem of the tunic, and you might think, let's just rip this thing to pieces, but they thought it was valuable because of it was woven and it was one piece, and some expositors go off in these really strange places about the tunic. We're not going there, okay? About the church, the unity of the church or something. They don't want to tear it up, Okay? And so their solution is really to cast lots to see it. They say, let's not tear it, okay, into four pieces, because then it has no value, okay? What they want to be able to do is to sell this stuff, okay? So they can supplement their income as soldiers. So let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And so where John goes with this In the midst of his humiliation, we also see, I think, a a glimpse of his exaltation because it's the fulfillment of Scripture. John refers us back to Psalm 22 when he quotes it. That these men, okay, they're Roman soldiers. It's 
pretty likely that they are completely and utterly ignorant of the Scriptures. Rare would be the Roman soldier who knew anything of the Scriptures. So they did not act to purposely fulfill this 1,000-year-old writing, but they did anyway. Their actions, motivated by their own desires, actually fulfilled the Scriptures, the promise, the prophecy that had been given by King David so many centuries before in Psalm 22. And so we see that the words of William Cooper are true, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. And in this place, it's the unsuspecting fulfillment of God's Word. That the death of Jesus and all of the circumstances surrounding the death of Jesus are not accidental, but purposeful and planned. And so Jesus' naked suffering and shame was the fulfillment of Scripture for our salvation. Second paragraph, let's kind of see what's going on there. Afflicted, Jesus comforts us in affliction. We see for the first time in John's Gospel that the soldiers are not the only people there. Of course, the other Gospel writers mention the crowd that would be mocking Jesus, but they were pro-Jesus people who were there as well. And these were witnesses to His death. And that would be significant later on, because we must have a Savior who has died. And we have this, uh, even in the Greek, semi-cryptic statement, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Do we have three women? Or do we have four women? Is, uh, you know, his mother, of course, Mary, his mother's sister, is his mother's sister the same person as Mary, the wife of Clopas? Is Jesus' aunt also named Mary and the wife of Clopas? That would be a strange thing, wouldn't it? It's sort of like George Foreman, who named all of his sons George. You know, and so here, here you'd have a family and all the girls are named Mary. Okay. Satterfield girls, do you all, all want to be called Mary? Probably not. It's very difficult. You'd have, to, you'd have to do what George does. Number one, number two, number, you know, so you know, calling out Mackenzie. Number one. Okay. That would get strange. So it looks most likely, I believe, that there are four women here. As we look at the other gospel accounts to help us make sense of this, uh, Matthew 24, uh, 27, for instance, says, among them, among these other people, were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So here we have the other two Marys, uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary the wife of Clopas seems to be the mother of James and Joseph. And then we have this other mysterious person who is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And who, of course, were the sons of Zebedee? John and his brother James, the sons of thunder. Okay? 
In Mark 15, we see as well, and there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger. Okay, so we've got those two again. Um, and Salome. So, as we kind of put these pieces together, what seems to emerge is that um, the sister of Jesus' mother, meaning Jesus' aunt, most likely was named Salome and was the mother of James and John. Meaning that the sons of Zebedee were his cousins. Okay, That's probably what's going on here as we try to make sense of these gospel accounts. Why would he not mention his mother's name? Well, for the same reason he doesn't mention his own name. He's there, but he mentions himself as the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John never in this gospel ever gives his own name. Okay? And so we see that he wouldn't give his mother's name. And we notice as well is that he doesn't give Mary the mother of Jesus' name. He doesn't give his aunt's name. He obscures the family because it's not about family. It's not about blood ties. It's about faith in Christ. That's what matters to John and ought to matter to us. They were there because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, not simply because he was a relative who was being put to death. We see here as well uh, Clopas, well, the wife of Mary, the wife of Clopas. Miriam apparently was a very popular name in uh, that day and age. Um, and the other lesser name, uh, James, she was the mother of the lesser named James, lesser known James. Um, we see as well Mary Magdalene for the first time in this gospel. She is from this place called Magdala, which is most likely a, a city in Galilee, and she is known in other gospel accounts uh, for as being the woman that Jesus cast out seven spirits, unclean spirits. So this is a woman who, whom he has released from bondage, spiritual bondage, and now is part of the group of disciples that travels with Jesus along with these other women. Okay? And here we have something that is astounding. Think about this for a moment. Imagine that you are being crucified. You have been beaten within a square inch of your life in the scourging prior to uh, being crucified. You've carried the cross beam. You have... Um, been nailed or tied to it, most likely in Jesus' case, nailed to it. You're struggling to breathe. You, you, you're in the hot sun. You're parched. All of these things. Would you consider another human being? You, in such an afflicted state, would, would you care about the affliction of another person? Me, not so much. 
I would not have the response that Jesus has according to John. Jesus is enduring a most painful death and he addresses his mother and the disciple whom he loved. And what he does as he does, as he does this is he fulfills the role of an eldest son to a widow because he's entrusting his widowed mother into his friend and cousin's care. He says, woman, okay, again, it's not about blood ties. This is not a uh, denigrating uh, word or use of this word. Okay? It is not meant to be insulting in any way, shape, or form. Woman, look, your son. He's not pointing to himself or indicating himself. He says to him, look, your mother. And so even as he's dying a most painful death, Jesus is providing for his mother and for her care for the rest of her life. We're reminded in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He has, in a sense, broken that commandment of honoring your father and mother. So that would be, this is an extension. Jesus fulfilling that particular commandment on behalf of his mother. At this time, his own brothers did not believe. Were they also estranged from Mary at this time? We're not really sure. But there was some conflict within the family because, remember, his brothers thought he was crazy. And even in John's Gospel, we see how they sort of mocked him before one of the festivals. But spiritually, John and Mary are in this relatively the same place. And so he entrusts his mother's care into the hands of the man who loved him, who he knew would care for his mother. Some have said that, it's, that uh, from that hour the disciple took her into his own home as, to, as if John left the crucifixion site with Mary, brought her to his home, then came back. And that's nearly not what it means. It just means that he took care of her from that point on. That's all it means. But while dying, he sees the fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy that a sword would pierce her heart. And of course, that's not referring to a literal sword, but just that she would be devastated by what happens to her son. That he sees that she is filled with grief and Jesus comforts her in her sorrow and affliction even as he is afflicted. And he comforts her through his friend, John. It's here we see a picture of the tenderness and strength of Jesus and of God. In 2 Corinthians 1, there's this whole section about how God is the God of all comfort. In the midst of that we see, and as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 
So united to Him, we, we partake of suffering on His behalf, but we also partake of His incredible comfort. And Paul there talks about how when we have received comfort from God, we are able to comfort those who are being afflicted at that moment. So it all starts with Jesus who comforts us in the midst of our afflictions. We see, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear throughout the Scriptures, things like Psalm 147, that He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. And so this, uh, what we see here at the crucifixion should not surprise us because it's the character of God to do this. And so Peter, in similar fashion, encourages his people that he writes the first letter to, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so we can be sure that Jesus acknowledges our afflictions. He is not calloused and hard to our afflictions as though somehow he compares them to his own and says, you really haven't suffered. I really suffered. But he sees, he cares, he comforts. Great is his love for his people. That's what he does. He acknowledges our afflictions and he provides comfort for us. And as we see, as I alluded to in 2 Corinthians 1, it's often through His people, just as it was for Mary. It was through John. And so there's, a, there's an encouragement here, I believe, to bring our broken hearts. To bring our wounds to Jesus. So they can be bound up. They can be healed. So the the gospel balm can be placed upon those broken parts within our hearts and there can begin to be healing that is so desperately needed for us. For when we've been sinned against other people, we become wounded. And sometimes our own sins can create problems within us. Because sin always brings misery. And so... Instead of just pretending you don't have the broken heart, or instead of pretending that time and time alone will heal that broken heart, you're intended to bring that broken heart to Him. Bring the loss and the sorrow to Him so that He can bind it up, so He can fix it. So you can receive the tender compassion of the Savior. And so we see that Jesus was not consumed by His affliction as we might be, but He still cared for others in their affliction. Thirdly, the unique work of redemption is completed. This last paragraph, in a sense, John condenses these three hours, at least, of agonizing time into a few paragraphs, and here it reaches its crux or end. 
It starts with him saying, knowing that all was now finished. Jesus understands the moment. Okay? He knows that the time of his death had arrived. He knows that he has paid the price for our sin. He declares, I thirst. Now here's where it gets a little confusing. It says, to fulfill the Scripture. Now we're not sure what fulfills the Scripture. Because we don't really have a passage in Scripture that says, I thirst. Okay? We don't, this is not like when Jesus quotes from the beginning of Psalm 22. Okay? And so what he's doing is he's prompting the fulfillment of the Scripture on behalf of, again, those ignorant soldiers. Okay? He's declaring his thirst so that they will give him sour wine to drink and fulfill what we see in Psalm 69, verse 23. Earlier, Jesus had um, rejected the wine that was filled with gall because at that point, it was early in the crucifixion, and what that was done uh, was often given as an anesthetic so he wouldn't feel the pain. Jesus rejected that so he would fully feel the pain. But now Jesus needs to say something a little more important. He's parched because he's hanging in the desert sun, and we all know what that can be like. He's been bleeding, so he's also lost fluid that way. So he's incredibly dehydrated, and so he is able to eke out, I thirst, so he can receive Um, Just enough of this sour wine, which was something that soldiers drank quite a bit of, which is why there's a jug of it nearby, so that he can say something else. He wants a final declaration because he knows it's time. And so they give him the cheap wine on the sponge so that he can drink it or, you know, get enough to wet his mouth. And what matters here is the declaration, it is finished. It's the same verb that we see when it says, knowing that all was now finished. Jesus is making the declaration for others to hear that it is finished. When we go to Costco, when I go to Costco, I often have a child with me. And if you have gone to Costco and had a child with you, you are familiar with this experience. Because they always check your receipt, you know, to make sure that you paid for stuff. You didn't sneak some extra dog food on there or something. And because you have children, what we usually get is a little smiley face. Okay. What would happen in that day is they would put, not smiley faces, but they would put that word on receipts. Meaning, paid in full. It is finished. The debt is finished. And so Jesus is declaring not that... His life is finished, but Jesus is declaring that the debt is finished. That there has been full atonement for sin. I had uh, a friend of mine call the other day out of the blue. Uh, I used to, he used to be one of my roommates. I stayed in his house, and uh, he's now a church planter in the ARP. So we were in the same presbytery for a while. I, I helped him pass his ordination exam. 
you know, and um, sitting in our little kitchen in, in Florida. Um, and so, you know, his brother-in-law was struggling because of the, the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. And his, his pastor in a different church had said that he didn't believe that. And then, of course, now the question is, well, what do you mean you didn't believe that? What's meant by that kind of thing? We don't believe, or we shouldn't believe, that Jesus died upon the cross and then descended into hell. And one reason is because his declaration here, it's finished, as well as the declaration that he made to the other the man upon the cross, who one who repented, said, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay? Jesus descended to hell on the cross. It's a summary statement of the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Jesus here says, completed, accomplished. Okay? This is not like George Bush on the aircraft carrier where it really wasn't completely accomplished. You know, mission accomplished, that banner thing. You guys remember that? All right. I got some faces looking. Huh? So, um, this is done. Everything that he has needed to do for the forgiveness of our sin has been completed. There's nothing else to be added to it. And we see that, that uh, the writer of Hebrews makes this point repeatedly. For instance, in Hebrews 9, verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, and it's Christ's shed blood that brings the forgiveness, and He's done shedding blood. His sin-bearing as our substitute was finished. There was nothing more to add to it. There is nothing that you can do that can take away from it. He suffered the full and complete wrath of God, and your sins cannot exhaust its rich supply. That is why someone wrote a song, Grace Greater Than All Our Sins. J.C. Ryle again, We rest our souls on a finished work. If we rest them on the work of Jesus Christ the Lord, we need not fear that either sin or Satan or law shall condemn us at the last day because we go back to it is finished. And when he tries to remind you of that sin that you have committed, that's part of what you... It is finished. Christ has done it. Christ has paid I am free. And so you can bring up this sin all you want. It doesn't matter in the court of God. I've been acquitted because of Jesus. Don't try to add to that work of Christ. Don't punish yourself. And we see so many people doing that with their addictions as a form of self-punishment, thinking that that will make atonement for their sin. Don't try to pile up good works as though somehow that will make atonement for your sin. We can only receive what Jesus has done by faith. And so indeed, we must let it sink deep into our hearts that His grace is greater than all our sin.
And it is difficult to believe that when you feel really guilty some days. But that is why we are to live by the Scriptures and not the condemning conscience within. Which is why John says in his first letter that God is greater than our conscience. Your conscience will condemn you. The Word of Jesus upon the cross should comfort you. And so we see in this incredible irony that the glorious Son, the One who is the source of life, both physical and spiritual, was exposed to shame, to destitution, and ultimately gave Himself over to death. All of these in fulfillment of the Scriptures so that we could receive the life that we had forfeited by sin back in the garden. That those who were dead in sins and trespasses could be made alive with Christ. And so the joy of salvation is more fully understood by seeing the shame of His suffering. By seeing the spiritual agony as He is forsaken by the Father as our substitute. As we see the emotional agony that Jesus goes through as well as the physical agony. And it is faith, and faith alone which receives the benefits of the saving work of Christ. And so we find that this is not supposed to be a sad story, but one that makes the heart glad. Because it is one in which life is restored through His life which was taken. Let's pray. Father, help us to worship. To receive, if we haven't already, what has been offered. What has been done. And for those of us who have already received it, but help us to plumb the depths of it. To have a better better grasp and understanding of it. That we're overcome with joy that we're overcome with worship, that we're overcome with gratitude, that this holy week would be one in which You fill us with Your holy joy. And that that gratitude would overflow not just in words of praise, but in us commending Jesus to other people. That when we come upon those who are weighed low by, the, by sin and misery, Father, that we would say, Jesus says it's finished. Look to the Son and live. That we would be persistent in commending Jesus to those who are dead in sins and trespasses that they might be made alive in Christ by the means You have appointed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.